Hi folks, welcome to another instalment of the O Group on the World Water Nation podcast with myself, World Water Explorer Lawrence Waller and my colleague, Bathful Guide Ben Main here at World Water Nation. Today we have the rather mammoth but equally fascinating and quite frankly exciting task of looking at the wartime experiences of the Nottinghamshire Yeomanry or Sherwood Rangers, I suppose they're more affectionately known. Uh, and a man that I'm sure needs no introduction is British historian James Holland, who's kindly agreed to join us today to discuss the SRY and a few of those men who served with this armoured regiment in the Second World War. So welcome and thanks for joining us, James. Oh, no, absolute pleasure. And as I say, I'm sorry I'm a little bit late. <laughs> no problem at all. I think it's fair to say this is a regiment undoubtedly close to your hearts. Um, how did you first become involved in researching them and what specifically drew you to this unit? Yeah, so this is my first ever trip to Normandy back in 2004. And um, I was there with a bunch of mates and um, we all went over in sort of uh, Jeeps and my Citroen and various other vehicles and had the most fantastic time. And in 2004, there were still quite a lot of veterans there. So actually we were on... Gold Beach, we were obviously looking at where the Sherwood Rangers were, but we were also looking at where um, 69 Brigade came in and the Green Howards, um, they of Stanley Hollis VC fame. Uh, and it was amazing. Um, but one of the guys who was in our party was David Christopherson. And I hadn't met David before, but we, uh, we got on really, really well and became firm friends very, very quickly. And he's, and he's saying, well, you know, my dad was, um, was commanding, uh, you know, he landed on D-Day on Gold Beach and a few days later he was, uh, became commanding officer of the Sherwood Rangers Yeomanry. And um, I've got my, I've got his diaries here. And <laughs> this is all just sort of manna from heaven as far as I was concerned. Anyway, we were staying at a place called Adroy, um, which is a little way inland, just south of, um, of Bayeux, um, which is kind of more infamous in a way because the whole load of Canadians were um, were slaughtered in in the woods behind the uh, the chateau there by uh, by the 12th SS. But just above that is Point 103, which is a really key landmark in the subsequent battles and, and much of the fighting through in that part of the the front line, pretty much right until kind of very end of June, really. Um, and anyway, we kind of looked on the map and realised that that Point 103 was very close to where we were staying. So David and I left all the others and said, let's go and let's go and wander up there and go and check it out and have a look. So we had his dad's diaries and he was talking about this sort of sunken lane at the top of 10.103 and it being tree lined and all the rest of it. And we were there and we just went, this has got to be it. This has got to be it. And this is very early on in my kind of Second World War career. So it just seemed impossibly exciting and captivating. And I became very good friends with David, but I also got hold of his dad's diaries subsequent to that, because at the time I was writing a book about um, the North Africa campaign. Um, and the Sherwood Rangers, of course, have been in, in, um, in North Africa. And so I followed, Stanley was one of the characters I followed in my North Africa book, his dad, his father, Stanley Christopherson. And that's how it sort of really came, it came about. And then I was sort of following Stanley in War in the West, volume one and volume two. And then, I don't know, I just sort of got to know a few more. And, we, and then and then we spoke, David and I kind of talked about, wouldn't it be wonderful to kind of do a kind of edited version of his father's wartime journals and diaries and stuff, which we published, I don't know, maybe 2012, something like that. Um, and to do that, David and I went off and interviewed some of the last surviving veterans. And what an amazing experience that was. Um, not least because we got to talk to legendary John Semkin, who was one of the kind of absolute 
legends of the regiment in the Second World War, went through most of the war with them um, and was uh, a squadron commander for much of the kind of period from Normandy all the way through to, uh, well, to November 1944, uh, late November, beginning of December 1944. And um, that has just got to be one of the greatest interviews I've ever done with a World War II veteran. I mean, you know, he was just remarkable and it was incredible how, how articulate he was about his experiences but also how revealing it was. And, and I, it, that was the first time I really properly started to think, crikey, God, it was tough being in a tank um, for anyone in World War II. Um, and so, and then last summer, I was talking to John Orloff, who was one of the script writers of Band of Brothers. We were talking about it. And just afterwards, I suddenly thought, God, you know, this is, there's never really been a British Band of Brothers. And wouldn't it be cool to do a tank regiment? And wouldn't it be great to do the Sherwood Rangers? And one of the things that you, if you're going to do a book like that, you need a lot of personal eyewitness accounts, you know, letters, diaries, memoirs, all that kind of stuff, author interviews, you know, previous interviews in the Imperial War Museum. You need a lot. And there's not that many units where there is enough today to be able to do it when there's almost no veterans left. But the Sherwood Rangers does fit that bill. And I had a lot that I did because I was doing the interviews with Stan, you know, I was doing um, editing Stanley's diaries a little while ago. Plus there's a few in the improvements. In. Plus I got to know the whole kind of Sherwood Rangers fraternity. So there's a whole load of unpublished letters and, and there's one set of unpublished letters um, that have never, ever seen the light of day before. I mean, you know, they've never been shared. They've never, you know, I, I am the only person outside the family that's ever seen them. Um, and actually that guy died and I've just been writing about his death today. And I've got to say it's quite upsetting, really, because the thing about letters is they're very, very immediate. They're written in the moment with all spelling mistakes and grammatical errors. And, you know, you, you sort of you, you get over a body of letters from, say, June to late September 1944. You get a real sense of the kind of highs and lows. You get a sense of when he's up and when he's down. You get a sense of. of of just how young these guys were. I mean, this guy was 21, but you the, you can still see the kind of the boy in him. You can hear it in the words that he's writing on the page. The fact that most of his letters to his mum and dad tells you that this is a man who, yes, is strictly speaking an adult, but is in that kind of in-between stage where you're not properly a man, but you're considered a man. But you haven't quite left the shackles of childhood. You know, you haven't quite left the sort of, the, the kind of, the essence of childhood behind yet and it's another underlying point that so many of these guys are just so young so it's been so, so sorry that was an incredibly long-winded answer Lawrence but but that's um that's how I came <laughs> to be involved with the show <laughs> well no that was fascinating to be honest you answered already two or three of my questions for that but uh, I suppose that was one of the points I was going to actually make is with the show at Rangers it does seem that there is a particular blessing in terms of the accounts that have been left. There is a real incredible amount, whether it be, as you say, audio files for the IWM, uh, whether it be books uh, and letters that seem to be left by members of this unit, which you don't yeah. seem to get with other, other units. Yeah, no, it's weird that. I don't, I don't know why particularly. Um, uh, one of the things that really helps is that there is still um, a squadron of the Royal Yeomanry as the Sherwood Rangers. Um, and they're... Um, training base is at Carlton just outside Nottingham and they've got an archive there and they've got lots of stuff which you know apart from the kind of voluntary archivists and there's a wonderful guy called Steve Cox who who's who's a kind of chief one all volunteers I hasten to add 
you know, thanks to them and thanks to their hard work and thanks to their dedication and, and the kind of pride that is, is held still in the Sherwood Ranges. As a result of that, there is, you know, the archive's pretty good, but it's also not really plundered. So there's been loads of material up there. I mean, one of the things that's really struck me from, from going up to Carlton, looking at the archives up there, was, was the um, Regimental Welfare Association. You know, obviously we still have regimental welfare associations, reg regimental charities, you know, we're doing some sort of work with the parachute regiment at the moment with their charity. You know, and of course there's help for heroes and Saffer and, you know, walking the wounded and all the rest of them. But they had them all for individual units back in the war because of course there also wasn't a welfare state in those days. And this was, so the welfare association for the Sherwood Ranger was set up by someone called Myrtle Kellett. And Myrtle Kellett was the wife of the second CEO. Flash Keller, who was an MP, they're both incredibly well-to-do, they're very um, well-connected people. And Flash actually died in January 1943, um, was killed in Tunisia. But Myrtle had already set up the Regimental Association. The whole point of it was, was A, to kind of make sure that families and wounded veterans and all the rest of it were looked after. But it was also a means of keeping families informed. So... The commanding officers and senior officers would all write to Myrtle incredibly long-winded letters about what they've been up to. And of course, as senior officers, they're not getting censored. So they're able to, you know, a couple of months after the events, it's, it's no big drama about writing about stuff. So you get these incredibly, you know, long-winded letters about what they've been up to, which are just fantastic. So you've got those. Then you've got all the letters between the families and her and people asking for kind of, you know, post-war as well you know some terrible stories and also all the kind of letters of consolation you know um all, all the losses and it's been an incredible resource and it's also just a reminder that that these guys aren't operating in isolation you know in egypt or tunisia or normandy or holland or wherever it might be you know that there is this wider fraternity that these aren't just statistics these aren't just people what's happening to them and what they're going through has much greater ramifications you know as of course it would you know every every death every serious wounding or anything like that has incredible effects on a wide range of people families friends husbands you know wives kids all that kind of stuff but sometimes it's easy to forget that you get so caught up in the history of things and just all the frontline stuff that you forget there is all this other stuff going on back at home as well and it has you know, it's sort of just, it's, it's, it's just been fascinating and just sort of made me think a bit more about it all. Well, turning back to Stanley Christofferson, um, obviously that must have been absolutely incredible to get your hands and read his war diary for the first time and, you know, and retracing his footsteps with his family. That um, must have been a remarkable experience. What was he like as a man and how did he cope with, I guess, the immense pressures and responsibilities of leading his men through the Northwest European theatre campaign? Because that must have been undaunting. I don't know how to even put it into words, really. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's really interesting. I mean, it, I was worried when I started writing the book that I was going to be focusing too much on officers and not enough on, on the troopers and other ranks. And, of course, inevitably, that's because officers tend to be more inclined to write stuff down than people who've left school at 14. You know, that's just just fact of life. But actually, what I've realized is that it is those senior officers and the squadron commanders and the troop leaders who just had gargantuan amounts of responsibility on their shoulders. It's interesting that when, uh, so, so Flash Callett was, was much loved uh, and he was this kind of on a much higher pedestal. You know, he was an MP. I think he was in his late 30s, already 40s by the time he died. 
he was incredibly well connected and he was just on a kind of higher plane much respected much loved but but there was a kind of sort of there was a sort of barrier between him and the kind of the rest of the men i think even though he was he was popular then then came donny player and he was much loved as well and he was just an absolute pre-war beating heart of the of the regiment as well and he was then killed in tunisia then they had two interregnum COs. Then Anderson was wounded on D-Day and Mike Laycock took out. And again, Mike Laycock goes back to the pre-war yeomanry years, but he was known as Black Mike. And although he was a very warm-hearted fellow, he had absolutely a touch of the black dog and an incredibly short fuse. And so he was a bit feared. When Stanley took over on the 11th of June, which was then kind of ratified on the um, on the 15th of June. He it's clear that he obviously thought I'm going to I'm going to have a different command style. I'm going to be. I'm going to make sure that I maintain that kind of barrier, which is easy for him to do, because I think he was 32 at the time. So he's a little bit older than than most of the officers, but not all. Um, but he was obviously going to be incredibly positive uh, and make sure that, that the troop morale was absolutely to the forefront of everything. So he made a huge effort to go around and constantly be cheerful, constantly be upbeat, constantly have a smile on his face. Absolutely come down on people if he, he needed to, but, but to try and get what he wanted through charm and empathy rather than barrack room brawling and shooting his top. And it was really interesting that back in 2011 or whenever it was that David and I were going around interviewing veterans. To a man, they all said, God, David, you know, your father was just amazing. I don't know how he did it. I just don't know how he did it. He always had a smile on his face. He was always cheerful. He always kept us going. He was just the most extraordinary man. And John Semkin, who was this um, uh, legend and squadron leader, even though he was only 23 in 1944, he kept interrupting the conversation and turning to David and just go, I just don't know how your father did it. I just do not know how your father did it. I don't know how he kept going all that time. You know, the losses, which were just relentless. And I think Stanley was, was obviously an incredibly charming man. You know, he was very clever, very smart. He was quite worldly. He'd, he'd, he'd worked in South Africa, worked in the city, quite well reasonably well connected but he was amusing and, and he he had wide interests so he had that kind of sort of he had that ability which only certain people have of being able to talk to all people and make whoever is he's talking to feel incredibly important to him and it's a really rare gift and not everyone can do that but he just had it i mean it's interesting because because david said that when he was growing up um and, and Stanley, Stanley was quite, you know, he didn't have his kids at all until he was in, well into his 40s. Um, he said that, you know, there were periods where his dad would just disappear for a couple of days with a bottle and you knew not to disturb him. Um, you know, how, how do you cope with that? I mean, the, the casualties are just so horrific and, and writing the book has just underlined that. But, you know, think about a, a, a squadron commander or think about a troop leader. You know, you've got to, you've got to, Think about, you've got to have your head out. You have to have your head out because if you don't have your head out, you can't see anything. The moment you put your hatches down, you're blind. Yes, you've got periscopes, but they're, they're awful. I mean, you know, you can see diddly squat out of them. You can just see that, you know, it's letterbox stuff. And that's mm. just not enough when you're in action. 
And don't forget, as a troop commander, you're not just commanding your own tank. You're also commanding the other three behind you uh, uh, and around you. And you've got to be able to see. So you've got to, as a troop commander, you've got to be able to communicate with your crew, communicate with your troop, be able to communicate with the squadron and, if necessary, the wider regiment as well. Find out what's going on and, at the same time, watching for every single movement. And you've got to be able to make snapshot decisions because any kind of delay is, is, can be fatal. And you know that on your decisions, so many lives depend. So had you done something else, would that have meant that that crew was, wasn't brewed up? That is the responsibility that you have. And you're 19 or you're 20 or you're 21. And I don't know what you were like as a 19-year-old or 20-year-old, Lawrence, but, but I know what I was like. You know, and I was absolutely useless. I mean, you know, absolutely good for nothing. Hopeless, feckless idiot. You know, he could barely wipe my own ass. So the idea that I would be true, you know, that I would be commanding kind of three or four tanks in battle with those crews and, you know, looking after infantry upon whose lives uh, um, they were dependent on the tanks. I mean, it's staggering. And of course, most of that time you're standing up. And, and of course, because you've got your head out, you're also at most risk because you haven't got the size of the tank to protect you. So that is why so many tank commanders and troop leaders were killed or, or wounded in the war. And, and, and it was a brutal, brutal business. And the pressures were just enormous. And those pressures were equally enormous if you were a squadron commander, because everything that applied to a troop commander was just magnified. And if you were the regimental commander, crikey, well, you had exactly the same responsibilities, but again, even greater. And, and it is those guys who are also making up the doctrine you know, the tactical doctrine as they come, because there is, you know, Normandy is so different from Tunisia and it's completely different from Libya. And so much of, okay, so you've got the benefit of the ex of combat experience, which counts for an awful lot, but the landscape requires entirely different ways of operating and entirely different tactics, which you've got to learn in a very, very quick order on the spot once you get out to Normandy. And, you know, I've just been writing this morning about kind of sort of, you know, operating in the polders, you know, near Nijmegen. That requires a whole different thing altogether because your only means of access are on these these raised roads you know on these dikes but of course the moment you're on those you're you, you've got nowhere to go you can't go left you can't go right because down you've got waterlogged polder country and you're kind of your, your profile is sitting up on this elevated position for everyone to just say you know i mean you couldn't be an easier target so then you've got to deal with those so the the whole host of constraints but completely different strengths to normandy and you've got to just be on it straight away and and my respect and awe in which I hold those people is just never been higher. I mean, it's just I just don't know how they did it. I mean, you know, John Senkin kept saying, "I don't know how how your dad did it," to David Christopherson about about Stanley, but I just don't know how any of them did it. You know, you're 19, you're straight out of Sandhurst, you come into that. I mean, blimey. Well, as you said, it's a real testament to Stanley, though. You know, the feedback from his fellow officers or his subordinates, I should say. Um, yeah, a real testament that. And we'll certainly be turning to tactics and doctrine and also the casualty figures in Normandy. Um, spoke to, well, technically Captain David Render, uh, I guess then he would have been second lieutenant in Normandy, yep. about those figures. So we will definitely touch on that in a bit. But let's wind the clock back now uh, to the start of the war. And it was certainly a long and rocky road before the SRY were finally converted from horses to tanks. Can you tell us a little bit? about those early war experiences and the type of men that initially made up their ranks during this time. And I'm, I'm pretty sure I recall reading that 
they were involved in like the siege of Tobruk and in Crete, but obviously they weren't actually armored, an armored unit, as it were, at that point, were they? Yeah. No, I mean, the yeomanry were cavalry, so um, that's how they started the war. I mean, you know, British army was 100% mechanized in 1939, but not the territorial bit. <laughs> and, you know, it's easy to forget that. And, you know, in 1939, all those yeomanry regiments were kind of getting about on horses. Uh, and, you know, and what they would do is they'd have a summer camp every August and they'd do kind of, you know, once a month kind of weekend training and all this kind of stuff. And they're all incredibly regional and it was all a bit of a lark. And, you know, you'd have farmers and, uh, and people who owned estates and local solicitors and stuff and estate workers and farriers and, you know, jockeys and things at the point to points from the local area would all be part of that regiment. Um, and the Sherwood Rangers was exactly that. I mean, there's a wonderful photo of them at the Earl of Yarborough's estate, the summer camp of August 1939. They look like they've just sort of walked straight out of the, the Anglo-Burr War kind of, you know, 40 years earlier. Um, you know, it's all Sam Browns and kind of cartridge cases, you know, leather, leather cartridge belts and thick and span and riding boots. And, you know, they just look ridiculous for, for 1939. Uh, and, you know, they were packed off to war in early 1940 um, to Palestine with their horses traveling, you know, by rail all the way down to Marseille, then getting a boat and stuff. I mean, it's just sort of, it's, it sounds so absurd now. Um, and they were in Palestine for a bit, um, sort of, you know, doing stuff against Arab insurrectionists, because don't forget, you know, Britain still had an empire then, even though the war was on, didn't mean empire policing didn't continue, um, and territories and overseas possessions and all sorts of interests and all sorts of stuff. So they were doing that. And then and they did a sabre-raised charge at Arab, Arab insurrectionists at one point, I think in April, May, something like that, 1940. Um, and then they had a rather embarrassing stampede of their horses. And after that, they were taken away. And for them, this was sort of, you know, massive red faces all around. But actually, it was all part of a kind of bigger plan. The, the issue was, of course, is that Britain had a very small army at the start of the war, just didn't have enough tanks to go around. So they'd already been earmarked for um, for mechanisation. But they're out there. They haven't got their horses. So what are you going to do with them? So they trained them on gunnery. And actually, training them on gunnery is a very good thing to do for um, for people who are eventually going to become mechanised into an armoured regiment. Um, they thought it was all massively in for a dig. Um, and actually part of the regiment was split and went to Crete and the other part went to the siege of Tobruk, as you mentioned earlier on. And actually Stanley was part of part of that. So I think it was B, if I remember right, it was B squadron went to Crete and ANC went to um, went to Tobruk. Um, so it's not until kind of early part of 1942, after the siege of Tobruk, that they are actually mechanised. They start training up in tanks. And their first battle is the Battle of Alam Halfa. It starts at the very end of August 1942. And they do a sort of mad balaclava charge um, across the open desert and get cut to pieces, or B Squadron does. Um, uh, and actually, Mike Laycock gets an MC, and that's the first MC of the war for, for the Sherwood Rangers. And then it's the Battle of the Alamein, and they're, and they're still kind of, they're in that transition period from still being kind of amateurs to kind of sort of moving on to being quite professional. But it's really interesting, when, you know, one of the really interesting things about doing the Stanley Christopherson journals and diaries was that, that you could see this transformation. And you could see that, that, I mean, that's where Flash Kellett was very good. He was very good at getting the right officers. So by 1942, the officers in the regiment, they're a real mixture of people that have been promoted from the ranks through to people like Stanley, who was actually at the um, uh, Inns of Court Yeomanry in London beforehand. Uh, and he tries to get really good people who can be really good officers. 
and, and Barnard, I think he succeeds. And someone like Stanley, you know, you can see that he wants to be good. He wants to be a good soldier. He wants to get better. And he's got bright enough to realise that the harder they train and the more they study modern warfare and tactics and really think about their experiences and how they can improve, the greater their chances of, will be of getting, un, getting through unscathed, notwithstanding the fact that so much of um, what happens in a war is, is just luck. But, you know, so I, I remember there was a sort of, it felt like a sort of Damascene moment for them, which is in January 1943. It's just before the, uh, it's just after um, Tripoli's been captured, which is what, 21st, 23rd of January 1943. And they're doing some exercises with their attached um, um, artillery. And Stanley's sort of going, you know, it's really, really important that we all learn about, you know, all arms um, cooperation and, you know, the infantry are a bit slow and we need to get better at this. And, you know, we've got some new artillery attached to us. And, you know, we really want to kind of hone this so that we absolutely completely trust each other and know what each other, each other is doing. I'm paraphrasing, but it's kind of words to that effect. And that is, that is a really big step forward. And by the time of the end of the Tunisia campaign, they have become seriously good. I mean, they really know what they're about. They're, they're led by really competent people with a really good um, cadre of hard fought combat experience, which, which permeates throughout the ranks. You know, there's, there's troopers who don't want to be promoted, who are tank crew, who are, are, but, but are, are battle wise. There's NCOs who've just stepped up, you know, the older state workers and farriers and stuff, you know, people like George Dring and Hutchinson. You know, these guys have all got MMs at the end of the Tunisia campaign. They've been around a block, you know, and also because a lot of them are countrymen, they know how to read the land, you know, they're good with their hands you know, all these things kind of really help. So it's no surprise that they're, they're sort of singled out and sent home to kind of be getting ready for the invasion. And by the time they land on, on, on Gold Beach on D-Day, you know, they're a, they're a seriously professional and smart outfit. And I think it's interesting because I think you can see them as a sort of light motif for the British Army in the Second World War. You know, they start off a bit kind of a bit juddering, a bit kind of behind the times with quite a lot of work to do, a bit small minded, you know, not quite kind of seeing that bigger picture. But as the war progresses, they hone their skills and they become sharper and sharper and sharper. And also kind of throughout throughout the war, that the Sherwood Rangers has always been filled with eccentrics and different sorts and different types you can never pigeonhole them you know they're not just sort of you know they don't stand on ceremony they're not lardy dar in any way they haven't got the sort of snobbery of the old armored cavalry regiments in the permanent army or anything like that but they know their business and they kind of sussed it out and that's why by 1945 they end up being the single unit with more battle honors than any other i remember you saying i think it was on um it might well have been on one of the episodes of We Have Ways, um, about that transition is no better illustrated in terms of their communications with the tanks. So initially they start yeah. off with like using cricket and uh, horse racing yes. kind of analogies, yes. and then obviously it changes. It's that transition yeah. you see. Um, yes. just my horse has lost a shoe. I'm returning to Pavilion. <laughs> it's my favourite. You know. Yeah, it's all that kind of stuff. And, and they, just, they just, you know, by, by Normandy, they're absolutely on it. They're using absolutely the right, the right radio language and yeah it's just you can you can see that and you can see that stanley christopherson when he takes over in mid-june you can see him thinking right i've i've got to use my personality to mold this regiment i've i've got to i've got to use my influence here and i can i can make it better i've got to i've got to get everyone thinking like i think you know using their mind 
thinking on their own two feet. I've got to, I've got to encourage people to use their own initiative. And that is, that is the key of command. It's not trying to micromanage. It's not trying to do everything yourself. It's guiding, it's influencing, it's setting example. It's, it's encouraging people to make their own decisions and, and think on their feet. And I think that's what he does. And I think what he wants is a, is a more kind of, he wants to encourage that. He wants people, you know, he's saying to people, come on, we've, we've got to, they're all having O groups where they're kind of going, okay, we've got an issue with the, with the, the infantry. The infantry go to ground the moment they get fired on. But then they can't be watching out for us. So what are we going to do about this? How, how, do we, how do we come up with new ideas? And of course, you know, this is happening across the army, but, but they are constantly honing them, their skills. They're getting better at it. They're, they're, they're learning how to kind of read the land, learn what they can do, what they can't do. And you see all these incredible developments in, in just in a space of a short, few short weeks in Normandy which they can then take forward for the rest of the war. You touched on obviously those, uh, those personalities and maybe, I guess, one of those potentially eccentric, I don't know if that's the right term for him, but uh, one of those, I suppose, who was a very promising young poet was Keith Douglas, um, quite a character. He managed to manoeuvre his way from a desk job to an officer yeah. within the regiment um, and serving with them in the desert at the Battle of Alamein before being wounded at Zemzem. Can you tell us a bit more about Keith's war and I suppose also what happened to him ultimately in Normandy? Yeah, so he's sort of, sort of part of the new breed of the rev, of of the regiment that's sort of coming in, sort of mid-war. These sort of younger guys, you've got no real relationship to Nottingham, no relationship to the yeomanry. He's just kind of ended up there for whatever reason. Um, and, and you know, he's a chippy little sod, really. You know, he was at Christ Hospital, but but and although he came from a kind of comparatively well-to-do family, they kind of the family lost some money. You know, and, and he was surrounded by these sort of landowners like Flash Kenner and Donny Player, who were kind of rich as Croesus. And he had a sort of social chip on his shoulder. Um, and to start off with, he was a bit bolshy and difficult and felt they were all kind of hunting, shooting, fishing types and he didn't fit in. Uh, but he underestimated them, which he, which he admitted himself. And he realised, he came to realise that actually... Shared Rangers was an incredibly broad church and that there was room for different types and different opinions and, and that actually he was valued. Um, and he got on, you know, he, he, he started to get on very well with people. I mean, he was an absolutely astonishingly good poet and writer and sensitive soul. Uh, and he was also absolutely fearless. Um, he was also blind as a bat and didn't wear his glasses very much because he was vain, uh, which obviously doesn't help. I mean, it's interesting, you know, uh, I mean, I always assumed that most of the casualties were, were um, from tanks brewing up. You're always hearing about tanks brewing up and how ghastly it is. Actually, it wasn't, you know, I've, I've done quite a lot of research on this and looked at quite a lot of analysis of, of um, knocked out tanks in Northwest Europe in 1944-45. And actually, 75% were outside the tank. So, so mostly it was it, being, being hit and a tank about to brew up or started to brew up was what caused the tank to be knocked out and what caused the men to be killed or wounded, but indirectly, because what would happen is they would then bail out of the tank and then be hit by mortars or by machine gun fire or whatever. Um, and mortars seems to have caused the most deaths by, by a country mile. So what happens with mortars is, is, as I'm sure you know this, is that you would have a big stash of mortars and you just go, boom, foof, off it would go, boom, off it goes again. And you know, you're literally doing one every two seconds until you've run out. So mortars tend to come down in stonks. So the, so the key with a mortars is, is to kind of not be there where, caught out in the open when the stonk starts. 
And if it is, you want to get undercover, you know, toot sweet. But then there's always a gap. So what you want to do is kind of hit the deck or lie under a tank or whatever until it's gone and then make a run for it. And what happens is that Keith Douglas is moving from one tank, you know, he gets out of his tank to go and talk to someone just as a stonk comes down. And a tiny, 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 tiny shard hits him. Um, and, and that's what kills him. And, you know, so, so, so small that you couldn't actually see it. So he looked completely untouched. But it was probably a really, really small shard that came to his head or something. That was near Tilly, was it? Yeah, so, yeah, Tilly, Tilly's disorder. It was actually just, it was on point 103 that I was mentioning earlier on. Yeah. Now, I've worked out exactly where it was where he was killed. So he'd just been down in Saint-Pierre, which is a kind of village just on the other side of the, of the Sewell River, um, and, and managed to, and got, and got attacked and, and managed to escape back up the hill. Uh, I, I got up the hill and that, later that same day, he was, um, he, he got out of his tank as a, as a mortar round came down. We left, obviously, a very That's interesting account um with his book obviously as you know Alamein's Zemzem. um yeah, which is brilliant. obviously it also caused us with a bit of controversy in the regiment maybe because of the way he describes uh obviously i know he, he tries to mask people's names but i guess you can quite easily see through that smoke yeah yeah, yeah um, you absolutely can so piccadilly gm is flash and um uh stanley is 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 edward uh it's quite interesting because he he asked uh, because ed uh, Stanley was his squadron commander. He asked him to kind of read an early manuscript and asked him to write an introduction to it, which, which Stanley did. And he's quite rude about him in places. Um, sort of implying that, you know, he's, he's superficially charming, but kind of never listening to anything, um, which is absolutely not the case. But what's very funny is that what Stanley took objection to was him saying that he wasn't a very good dancer. So he didn't <laughs> mind all the other character assassination. It was just the insult of his dancing ability that he asked him to change. Thanks for listening. We hope you found it of interest. If you enjoyed this episode, please do feel free to subscribe to the podcast or leave a review. We hugely appreciate your support. We'll be sharing more information about various things mentioned in this episode of the O Group on our social media channels. You can find this info and drop us a message with any questions by following us on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube at Worldwood Nation, and also Instagram at Worldwood Nation HQ. Obviously, also a big thank you to James for taking the time to chat with us about this fascinating topic. Part two of this conversation about the Sherwood Rangers Yeomanry in the Second World War will be out very shortly. Yeah.